is never enough. Never enough. Perhaps you are familiar with that mantra. Maybe you can experience or understand it in your own life. Regardless of what you have or how much you have been given, it's never enough. Maybe you've heard it voiced by recording artists or athletes who after getting this huge contract are asked, why do you keep playing? Why another record that disrespects women and disrespects God? Because after making all this money, it's still not enough. Maybe you've seen it in the too well chronicled stories of drug dealers, either famous out there on TV or in our own neighborhoods in DC and PG County, who entered into illegal activity to, to make money and make money and make money, and they knew the danger of it, of getting locked up or killed, and yet they still kept going. And when asked why, behind bars, they say because it was never enough. Something about us, isn't it, that is never content with what we have, full of ingratitude. I mean, we needed a special holiday just to put a pause in our lives to make us think about at least one thing that we're grateful for, that we can be content with. But as soon as we finish with that, we move right along to wanting more and more and more again. Thanksgiving Thursday rushes right into Build Bigger Barns Black Friday. Never enough. We want more and more and more. Is there anything that can satisfy us? That's what we'll talk about this morning in our passage from 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 21. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and this morning we'll look at verses 3 through 21. And if you're using one of the, the Bibles under the cheers, you can find it on page 993. We've been walking through Timothy's, uh, Paul's letter to Timothy over the the last 11 weeks, and so this morning we finish out the book looking at this last section in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting at verse 3. Paul says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. And we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of 
all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Now, as we go through this passage, I think we could legitimately preach three sermons from this text. I think you could preach one sermon from verses 3 to 10 and another from verses 11 through 16 and another from verses 17 through 21. But as I read through this passage this week, I think there's a common theme of contentment that's, that's tying them all together. I mean, we see it explicitly mentioned in, in verses 6 through 8, but I think it underlies the entire passage. From the focus on the dangers of desiring riches in the first portion, to then a, a word to the rich in the last section, starting at, at verse 17, and then sandwiched in between a, a word to Timothy on how he should live with his, his sights set on heaven. So I think there's a theme of, of being content with God and, and what God has in store for you and has already given you. So, so here's what I think is the, the main point of this passage. The main point of the sermon this morning. A Christian doesn't long for more and more in this life but rest content in what God has already given and lives in light of the better life ahead. All right, I'm going to say that again because y'all right, and I know. A Christian doesn't long for more and more in this life, but rest content in what God has already given and lives in light of the better life ahead. As we walk through this passage, I think we see three actions that we must take as it regards to living a contented life. 
Those will be the three points of the sermon this morning. Number one, we need to recognize the dangers of wrong desires. We see that in verses 3 through 10. Number two, we need to live like there's a better life ahead. We see that in verses 11 through 16. And number three, we need to invest now for eternity. We see that in verses 17 through 21. So number one, recognize the dangers of wrong desires. Number two, live like there's a better life ahead. And number three, invest now for eternity. Point number one, recognize the deadly uh, dangers of wrong desires. Look at verse three again. Paul says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And verse 3 sounds rather abrupt when Paul starts off just saying, if anyone teaches a different doctrine. But it flows from the latter half of verse 2, where Paul tells Timothy to teach and urge these things. Specifically, the things he just talked about in chapter 5, verse 1, down to chapter 6, verse 2, where he outlined how members of the church should treat others other members of different genders and generations, how they should treat older members who are widows, how they should treat and care for leaders, elders and pastors in the church, and even employers on the job. Paul wants Timothy to teach Christians how they are to live, how they are to care for others. It's in line with why Paul wrote the book in the first place. We've noted a few times already that that Paul states his purpose in chapter 3, verse 15, that he was writing to the church so that they might know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So in a broad sense, as as Paul is closing this letter, his command to Timothy here in verse 2 to teach and urge these things, is a command to teach and urge everything that Paul has wrote about to the church, how it should function, how it should be structured, how it should live life together as members, brothers and sisters. But in verse 3, Paul says that if anyone teaches something different, a different doctrine that doesn't agree with the sound words of Christ and the teaching that accords with or leads to godliness, then that kind of person is puffed up with pride and understands nothing. We talked about this earlier in the book, in chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul tells Timothy that he left him in Ephesus to charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine. There were false teachers in the Ephesian church who'd risen up, perhaps even were elders serving in the church, but were using their post or their position or their platform to spread false doctrine a different doctrine. And again, we noted that for there to be a false doctrine, there has to be a standard doctrine that the church stands on, 
agrees on and believes. And here Paul tells Timothy that that standard doctrine is the sound words of Jesus Christ, the teaching that accords to and promotes a godly lifestyle. Look at that term there, sound words. It's literally the term for healthy. So when we talk about a healthy church, we're talking about a sound church. And when we talk about sound doctrine, we're talking about healthy doctrine. We need to adhere to the sound words, the healthy words of Jesus Christ, who is the word of God, who himself is the resurrection and the life. He who is the great physician prescribes what we need to be healthy, his very word. You know, it's interesting when you read through the Gospels. As Jesus goes from place to place to place, doing all these miraculous things, healing the sick and causing the blind to see and the lame to walk, you can assume that that's what his ministry is all about. But you know, when the gospel writers summarize Jesus' ministry in a certain town or region, what they often emphasize is not first his healing ministry, but his word ministry. That he went through all the towns proclaiming the word and teaching the word. He knew that we needed words to live by. Friends, that's always been the case. When God first created Adam and put him in the garden, he gave him words to live by. When God created a new people, the people of Israel, and covenanted with them to be a people, What did he give them? His word on Mount Sinai to live by. When God became a man and lived among us, Jesus Christ didn't just do good actions and leave us to interpret those actions, interpret from them what he wants of us and what we need to be truly healthy and truly happy. No, what did he do? He gave us his words. He spoke to us. It is a kindness of God that he gives us his words for our spiritual health. Jesus, who descended to earth and spoke to us, continues to speak to us. He lived and he died and he rose for us and ascended into heaven and he sent his spirit who filled his apostles, who wrote down his word to us. These sound or healthy words of Jesus Christ are not simply all the words Jesus directly spoke, but all the words about him. Uh, So it's not just the red words in your Bible, but every single black word as well. All of it is the word of God, and we need all of it. If anyone teaches something that doesn't accord with this book, then it needs to be rejected. If anyone teaches something that doesn't accord with a godly life that this word of God produces, then it needs to be rejected. This healthy doctrine leads to a healthy life. Any teaching that doesn't make you more godly is a false teaching. Any teaching that adds to your intellect but doesn't add to your integrity is false. Any teaching that makes you more contentious but not more caring is false. Any teaching that simply sounds deep but doesn't produce deep joy, deep love, 
deep repentance, deep heartfelt change is false. And anyone teaching it isn't deep or insightful, but simply puffed up with pride with no real knowledge of what really counts. The false teachers claim they had a, a deep knowledge about myths and genealogies and, and certain aspects of the law. But it was only a knowledge about nonsense. They don't really know anything. The kind of knowledge they have is the kind Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. A knowledge that merely puffs up, as opposed to love that builds up both the individual and the body of believers around them. And notice what their teaching of different doctrine is motivated by. The latter half of verse 4 says, an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words, which only produces envy and dissension and slander and friction. You know, this unhealthy craving sometimes gets crouched under other terms like being curious. Sometimes what we label as being curious is simply unhealthy cravings for things we don't need to be seeking after. And often what it shows is a discontentment, a dissatisfaction with the things that we do have. So you have to think, how does one develop this unhealthy craving for controversies and quarrels? Well, it's in not being satisfied with the sound, healthy words of Christ. That's boring, bland, unexciting, old and worn out. That's grandma's religion or Paul's religion, merely a relic of antiquity. What God has done for sinners like us in sending Christ to live a perfect and sinless life for us the life of full obedience to God that we should have lived, and to lay down his life and die the death and absorb the wrath of God for us that we should have died, and to rise from the grave victorious over sin and Satan and death, those sound words about Christ, that good news about Jesus, is put down and abandoned. Not enough to hold our attention, to stir our affections to keep our allegiance. And what's picked up is something more provocative, controversial, something that will attract more buzz, more debate, more coverage, and bring seemingly more immediate benefit. I think we see here something of the anatomy of sin. It's often not grounded in ignorance not knowing God's word, not knowing what God has said. It's grounded in a discontentment with what God has said, a dislike of what he said, a disregard for what he said, and in turn, a desire for something different. When we depart from adhering to sound, healthy doctrine, it causes us to have diseased desires. You see it with Adam and Eve. They had God's word, knew what God had said about what they should and should not do, what would cause them to prosper and what would cause them to perish. But that was not enough for them. 
they turned from God's word and entertained a different teaching that tickled their ears, that stirred up unhealthy cravings and desires that, when acted upon, led to their demise. It will lead to these false teachers' demise. It will lead to our demise. I mean, look at what these cravings produce. More and more sin, envy, conflict, slander, friction, all things that earn God's wrath and simply show how depraved we are and how deprived of the truth we are. Are we immune to this? Turning from God's word and developing a diseased, unhealthy craving for controversy that leads us to embracing different doctrine? And perhaps the best way to answer that is, is not directly to think about do we desire the unhealthy stuff? Often we're blinded to that kind of thing. Perhaps the, the first question is, have we grown discontent with the healthy stuff, Amen. with sound teaching? I mean, are you bored with the Bible? When you wake up in the morning, is what's most satisfying to you the life-giving, life-sustaining presence of God in his word? Or is that the least fulfilling thing? which we quickly trade in for in favor of scrolling on our screens to find something more juicy, more satisfying, more rewarding. Has the gospel grown dull to you? I mean, you know the basics, have heard it all before. You know the outline, God, man, Christ's response. Is what you're itching after something new? Are you wanting to graduate beyond the gospel? Young people, does coming to church and hearing hour-long sermons seem absurd to you? Amen. Meanwhile, there aren't enough hours in the day to play Xbox. Saints, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on all of us, but I'm trying to pick at the perhaps subtle but dangerous dissatisfaction dangerous discontentment with God's word that reveals itself in the dangerous desires and cravings for other things. Brothers and sisters, I'm prone to that. I'm not immune to that. We all feel that. What's the solution? Well, we need to saturate ourselves more in God's word. Even when we don't feel like it, let's by faith resolve to study the word. Trusting that it's good for us. Trusting that we need our vegetables to make us healthy. Amen. We need this word to survive. Right. Let's pray together that God would satisfy us with his word. So that we wouldn't crave what's counter to it, his word. Pray that God would make us content with the gospel. And so keep us from drifting into the deadly end of following a different doctrine whether it's the formal, articulated teachings of some other religion or the unofficial but widespread dogma of the day. Amen. Do whatever makes you happy. But how are you going to be happy without God? How are you going to be spiritually healthy without God? Let us say with Peter, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Well, there's another dangerous 
desire that Paul warns that, that motivates these false teachers and that we must avoid. The love of money. Look there at the end of verse 5. These false teachers think that godliness is a means of financial gain. Now, of course, it's not a true gospel that leads to godliness that they teach. They teach a different doctrine that doesn't accord with godliness, that doesn't produce true godliness, but only sinful behaviors. But they're willing to use God in his name and his word and even hold out the promise that by following their teaching, you will be transformed. But they don't really believe it. So why do they teach it? To get paid. For them, godliness, religion, teaching, ministry, whatever you label it, is merely a means to get more and more money. They differ little from the prosperity preachers of today. They know what they sell in their little bottles ain't nothing but the processed water from the polluted Potomac River. But they package and promote it as holy water that will change your life. You just drop a little change in the plate. Or better, a cash that folds and you can get your blessing. But they know there's no spiritual healing in their hands. No financial breakthrough that they can guarantee. But greed for their financial breakthrough will break your pockets and cause you to break your bank. Now notice last week in chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Paul talked about the good of paying pastors who labor in preaching and teaching the word. But these men are false teachers who have strayed from the word and are only out to get paid. They'll sell religious teaching and spiritual change and whatever else you need to hear in order to acquire wealth. In fact, you notice that often the, the wealthiest religious teachers are the ones teaching a different doctrine. Maybe that's what keeps them in it. I mean, who pays big bucks to hear about a bloody cross? A crucified and risen savior who demands for you to die to self and live totally to him. Who commands and commends you to suffer for his namesake. But you teach the victorious life that everybody wants, and you can get lots of customers, I mean crowds and cash. Or you have some distinct teaching, a, a different take on Jesus, a more progressive view on marriage and gender than what this old book says. And people will pay you to promote their self-interest. If you're only out to get paid, you'll say and do anything. You will even pimp God to get gain. For these false teachers, godliness, instructions about living for God is only useful for financial benefit. Greed for gain is what motivates them. But Paul says in verse 6 that godliness with contentment is great gain. It's not simply a vehicle to something else, to monetary gain. Godliness is gain. When you're happy with what you have, when you're content with God and whatever he's given you. I mean, because here's the stupidity of attaching your happiness, your contentment on material goods and gain. It's all temporary. Paul says in verse 7, we brought nothing into the world 
and we can't take anything out of the world. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and just as naked I'm going back into the tomb. So just know that if you live to acquire all this stuff, that you can't take any of it with you. You're going to leave all this stuff behind. And somebody else going to enjoy it. That you had nothing when you came into the world should make you grateful that you have anything now. That we can't take anything out of the world should make us guarded about everything that we have now. That we don't become too attached to place too much value on any of it. Rather, here's the mindset Paul says we should have. Look there at verse 8. He says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. If if God grants the basic things, what to eat and what to wear, that's enough for me. And saints, it is God who grants those things. Remember Jesus' teaching in in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said that God is the one who feeds the birds of the air and who clothes the lilies of the field. And if he does that for fowl and for flowers, how much more will he take care of you? How ungrateful then it is when we eat meals daily and have choices of clothes to wear, but we question God's care for us because of what he has not provided. That spouse, or that house, or that job, or that promotion. And how doubly damning it is when false teachers take our sin of discontentment and couple it with their ungodly desires for greed and say, God wants you to have that spouse. God wants you to have that house. God wants you to have that job. God wants you to have that promotion. You don't have it because you don't have enough faith. And you demonstrate that faith by planting a seed or sowing a seed for me. It's a vicious cycle of sin and discontentment and ungodly desires for wealth that corrupts and destroys everyone involved. But that's what this insatiable desire for money always does. It destroys Paul says in verse 9 that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Friends, that's not just true of those who desire to get rich off ministry. That's true of those who desire to get rich, period. If that's the goal, the motivation, just know the results. Know where it leads. It plunges people into destruction. So kids here, trust the truth of what the Bible says about trying to get rich. Not what some rap artist portrays or says. Having lots of money will not make you happy. I was going to name some rap artists, but I'm probably so old, they're going to be bad. right? (laughs) Having lots of money will not make you happy. But it can be extremely harmful. It can become your God and separate you from your God eternally in hell. Paul explains further in verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
And by craving or desiring, desiring it, some have wandered away from the faith. Now notice, it's not money itself that is evil. Right? We want to be careful here. It's not, it's not that money as its own thing is evil. Right? We'll see later on that money can be used for all kinds of good. But the love of money is the problem. You cannot love God and money. Jesus taught in Matthew 64, you'll either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. You might think he will. I ain't got no money, so I can't love it. But just notice how Paul links love of money to craving it here in verse 10 and desiring to be rich in verse 9. Your wanting to have lots of it shows that you love it, even if you don't have it. Our deepest desires, our deepest loves are displayed in our deepest desires. What you love shows in what you want. If you love the Lord, you seek the Lord. If you love money, that's what you seek after. You will run after your gods. So be watchful. Be aware of your own heart. What signs is your heart giving you that you might be in danger? In danger of wandering away from God. Is it in not being content with God simply for who he has revealed himself to be in his word? Is it in not being content with what God has already given you? Are you desiring other things than him? Other things than than being with him and in him. Is he not enough for you? Friends, recognize the the deadly dangers of wrong desires and flee from them and live like there's something better than this life. That's the point number two, the, the kind of second charge in this passage. Live like there's a better life ahead. Live like there's a better life ahead. Paul spent verses 3 through 10 primarily targeting the, the wrong doctrine and the wrong desires of the false teachers. They are driven by unhealthy cravings for controversy and debate and for financial gain. But here in verse 11, he turns his focus to Timothy and what he should be driven by in contrast to the false teachers. Look at verse 11. He says, but as for you, O man of God, Zion, how you say man of God? Come on now. <laughs> but as for you, oh, hit it, Z. All right, here you go. Flee these things. Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The man of God should look different than the men simply out for gain. And what a privileged title that is. A man of God. A man who belongs to God. Who listens to God. Who's led by God. Who desires God. Who obeys God. That's the kind of man you want leading and teaching your church. But often what we value is a man of good looks. A man of eloquent speech, a man of great charisma, a man of great influence. That's what attracts us to churches. 
a man who looks impressive that we can all get behind. But friends, when choosing pastors in our church or choosing a different church, we need to ask of leaders, is he a man of God? Does he love the Lord? If he does, then his life should look different than the folks led by money and laboring to cause more division than unity by their ministries. Timothy is to flee from what they want, the desire to, to stir stuff up, the desire to simply do ministry for money, to flee the, the different doctrine they teach that's leading them to depart from the faith. Run as far away from those dangers as possible. Do not entertain them at all. And saints, that's what we should do as well, as men and women of God. So if you're visiting this morning, if, if you are a member of another church where it's evident that your pastor is only in it for the money, every sermon is an invitation for you to sow a little seed to grow his personal fortune, or where the pastor teaches things that are clearly contrary to what the Bible says, then the best thing you can do for your soul is to flee from these things to leave that church. You don't have to come to this church. We'd be happy to recommend other churches in our area. But you need to get away. Because what often happens is in your staying, you don't change them. They change you. Their message and their ministry becomes normative. And it's no longer evident that you are any different from them. That you are a man or woman of God to live for and to please him. Flee sinful desires and sinful teaching and teachers. But the Christian life isn't simply running from something. The Christian life is running towards something. Paul tells Timothy to, to flee what the false teachers were led by, but then to pursue what God desires. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. You notice how none of these have a focus on a personal platform, on personal wealth, on temporary gain. They are focused on God and on God's people. Amen. Whereas the false teachers were seeking wrong things, Timothy is to seek the right things, to pursue living a devoted life to God, seeking to please him, a life of righteousness and godly behavior. To pursue a deepening faith in and trust in God uh, through fellowship in his word and prayer. Uh, to pursue loving other believers and being gentle and not harsh towards them. Modeling Christ's own behavior. And to persevere in all of it. To be steadfast and immovable. In other words, fight Paul says in verse 12, not against God and other believers, fight the good fight of the faith. It is a struggle to live a committed life to Christ. The Bible is not unclear about that. There are dangers and temptations that must constantly be warded off. There is constant conscious activity that's needed. I mean, just notice the, the string of action verbs that Paul gives Timothy. Flee, pursue, fight. It's not possible 
to passively remain a Christian. It requires effort. Perhaps Timothy needed to be reminded of that. Paul had left him in Ephesus to stand for the truth in a church where it was being compromised by people more concerned with opulence and obtaining a following to their unique brand of doctrine than to anything else. Perhaps it was all weighing on Timothy. And he was feeling his inadequacy, feeling like he was pushing up against the wind and was contemplating leaving. But as Paul urged Timothy back in chapter 1, he is to stay. And as he urges him here, he is to fight. Fight for the truth of the gospel to shine brightly in this place. Fight the temptation to feel sorry for yourself. To throw in the title thinking it's all useless. God has you there as his man. Stand and fight. Perhaps it's a word you need to be reminded of today. God has left you here in a world where people are more concerned with opulence and obtaining a following to their own unique brand of doctrine than about God and his word. Where it feels like faith in Christ personally and calling others to it is a losing effort constantly, not worth engaging in. But hear Paul's words here to us. Fight the good fight of the faith. Keep pressing, keep enduring, keep struggling, keep laboring to make the truth of the gospel known. No matter the situations you're facing, no matter how hard they are, how much opposition there is. But why would anyone do that? Why fight and struggle when if you just change your focus, adjust your message and your motivations, you can have a good life now. A life of riches and wealth and prosperity and ease. Well, it's because as a Christian, your focus is on another life, a better life ahead, an eternal life. That's what God has called you to. Paul says in the second half of verse 12, God has called you to eternal life, which is amazing because what you and me and Paul and Timothy and every other single human being on the face of the earth deserves is eternal death because of our sinful rebellion against God. None of us have lived totally obedient to him. None of us have perfectly followed his commandments. All of us have broken all of them, and we all deserve eternal damnation in hell. But God has called us, like us. He's appointed us to have eternal life with him. And he's brought it about in an astounding way. He didn't just snap a finger. He sent his son to die for us to experience the hell that we deserve to experience so that we might be rescued. He rose Christ from the dead, giving him life forevermore. And for all of us who turn from our sins and put our trust in him, united to faith, we will live that eternal life with Christ. We will live with him forever. And in living with him forever, experience never-ending joy, everlasting bliss. So why live for the mess of today, for temporary pleasures? when you have eternity in view. 
Saints, that's not a fairy tale. That's fact that we cling to by faith. Until that faith becomes sight, becomes our reality. But we take hold of that eternal life now. We live now like we know where we're going, like we know what awaits us. We do not hold on to this world and live for all of its goods. We hold on to another world and live now for then. That's what Timothy pledged to do when he became a Christian and publicly declared that uh, through a baptism where he declared his faith publicly. That's what I think this language here about Timothy making the good confession in the presence of many witnesses refers to. It's probably a, a reference to his, his conversion and the public demonstration of that conversion, of that faith at baptism. He declared that Jesus was his Lord and that he would live the rest of his life for him in view of spending eternity with him. And Paul reminds him of his confession and encourages him to stand in it, to stay firm in it. And he charges him to do so in the presence of God. In verses 13 to 16. In the presence of God the Father who who gave you life, both physical and spiritual life. And in the presence of God the Son, Jesus Christ, who, who himself made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. He didn't deny who he was. He didn't turn away from fighting for the faith. But he struggled in it. He suffered for it even to the point of death knowing the glory that was to come. So Timothy, so you and I are to stand firm in the faith, to keep the command, to uphold the faith, to keep the gospel from being stained and looked down upon. We do so by looking to God and living in light of his presence and what he has in store for us. I mean, just consider the stunning reality of who we live before. God, who who Paul says in in verses 15 and 16, is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. It leads, leads Paul to praise, to him be honor and eternal dominion. This is the God we lived before and who we live for, and who one day, amazingly, this God who dwells in unapproachable light, one day we will live with. That's what's truly valuable, that we have a relationship with this great God, that we will dwell in the presence of this awesome God. But until then, we labor to display his great worth in our lives, Treasuring him, not stuff. We don't need more and more things. We only need him. We show that he is enough by living like there's a better life than this one. The eternal life with him forever. And so how should we live now then? Well, we should invest for eternity. That's the third and final charge we see in this passage. Invest now for eternity. Paul turns his focus explicitly back to to riches in this last section. But but here the focus isn't on the dangers of desiring riches as wrong motives. But here the focus is on the usefulness of riches for good. Paul says in verse 17, as 
for the rich in this present age. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything we have, with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, and thus storing up treasures for themselves and a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, some of you all might be tempted to tune out right now under the rationale that this passage certainly is not talking to you. I mean, you done checked your Bank of America app before you walked in here this morning, and it confirmed that you certainly are not rich. Well, that's a fairly relative thing, isn't it? Compared to Elon Musk? Maybe not. Compared to your boss? Maybe not. But what about compared to people in your neighborhood? Uh, what about compared to people in generations past? Uh, what about compared to people living in third world countries? You might just be considered rich. The focus here isn't necessarily on how much money we have, but what we do with the money we have. Paul, again, just reminds us that riches are only for this present age. For this life, again, we can't take it with us, but we can send it ahead. We can use it in a way that has eternal benefits. Riches aren't to make us haughty or proud, boasting that we have something that others don't. Riches aren't for us to rest on. They are unstable. Here today and gone tomorrow. Uh, the writer of Proverbs chapter 23, verse 5 says, As soon as you fix your eyes on them, they sprout wings and fly away. Amen. No, riches should be used to show all the more our reliance on God. We set our focus on him and use what he's given us to bring him glory. How do we do that? Well, by enjoying his gifts. His gifts like money, but enjoying them as gifts from him and not as gods in and of themselves. They are means to an end, not an end of themselves. And we show that by giving what God has given us. Having a loose grip on this world's goods. The rich shouldn't be known for simply having and holding and hoarding, but freely giving being rich in good works, being generous and ready to share. Saints, that's why we give to the local church. God does not need our money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If I had need, he said, I wouldn't ask you. He don't need our money to save people, to send his gospel out, to strengthen and equip his church. But God has chosen to use money partly for those purposes, and entrusted us with money to partly use for those purposes. So saints, let me ask, do you give? Do you give to the church? Do you give for the work of God to go out and to prosper through our local church? Or are you too attached to your money? Assuming that is your money and not God's. 
to be spent on your priorities and not his. But what do you have that God has not given you? What does your attitude towards money say about your attitude about God? Is it seeing a certain amount in your bank account every month that satisfies you? You know you'll never use that full amount, but it feels good just to have it. Is that what makes you rest assured and not God himself? We have the amazing opportunity to use the money God has entrusted us to make eternal spiritual investments. In using money to to pay pastors, like Paul said last week, we bless our souls by feeding on the faithful word that's taught, building us up more and more into the image of Christ through his word. In using money to upkeep our building, we give a central place where we can all meet to hear the word, to sing the word, to pray the word, to read the word, and to fellowship together. We have a place where visitors can easily find us and walk in off the street and hear a life-transforming message about Jesus Christ. In using money to support missions, we speed the word ahead to other places and peoples where we ourselves have not gone. And we don't know anybody there necessarily, but we know they need Jesus. And we want them to hear about Jesus, so we give so the gospel can go out. And here's the thing, we may never see the full effects of what those investments produce. We may never see the payoff, but Paul says there certainly is one. In not using money to amass treasure here, but giving it for the work of the Lord, we store up treasure for the future. God will reward us for showing that he is our treasure by using these little earthly treasures for his eternal glory and to see people welcomed into his eternal kingdom. So saints, use what God has given you. Use the riches he's given you to be generous, to freely give, to be ready to share. Be a model of Christ. He who was rich clothed himself in poverty. He became poor for our sake so that by his poverty, we might become rich. Let us follow our Savior, giving for the eternal good of others. Paul closes with final instructions to Timothy here in verses 20 and 21. He tells him, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. The deposit here is the gospel message, the pearl of great price, the treasure entrusted to us jars of clay. We are called to guard it, but not using it as a means to build our own platforms, our own wealth, not subscribing to or mimicking the the false doctrines of the day but holding it up and living for the truth. After all, that's the church's job. We are the pillar and buttress of the truth. What a precious gift the Lord has given us. What a high calling to to, to save us 
and then to use us as a means to proclaim his gospel to save others. What more can we ask for? What more do we need? Nothing. We have God. We have his word. And we have his promise that if we hold fast to him, we will have eternal life and joy and peace and pleasure forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that builds us up, that instructs us, that challenges and convicts us, and that changes us. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would find joy in you and your word. Lord, keep us from from chasing after other gods. Make us satisfied in you, Lord. Satisfy us with your steadfast love, with your presence, with your glory revealed through your word about your son. And Lord, we pray that we will be vehicles of your glory to show others that living for Christ is enough. We pray all this in Jesus' name.